0: Welcome to this, the second podcast organized by the editors of the journal, Capitalism, Nature, Socialism. Our previous episode, which was in fact our inaugural episode, saw geographers and um, CNS editor Linda Kikavish and Noura Al-Khalili in a conversation about the destruction of the Palestinian Musha, or the common lands, and what its defense might mean for decolonization. It is available on uh, the Capitalism Nature Socialism website with some show notes that include references um, and um, other notes that are mentioned during the talk that we add there and we'll post that URL in the chat. My name is Lee Brownhill. I am a volunteer associate editor of CNS and a long time editorial board member, and frequent contributor to that journal. I'm also a print artist and mask maker. My day job is as a part-time non-tenure track faculty member at Athabasca University, Canada's oldest uh, 50 year old, in fact, distance education university where I teach courses on social movements and environmental sociology and where I'm also a union activist. I am logging in today from Southern Ontario, treaty territory of the Haudenosaunee of the Six Nations of the Grand River. I'll just say one more word about myself before introducing our guests today so that you know more or less where uh, our journal and where our podcast is situated, at least in, in this moment. So, in my scholarship and in my life, I call myself an ecofeminist and eco socialist. I have had a special focus in my research on East African anti colonial and anti post colonial popular struggles and on the global movements for food and energy sovereignty, prison abolition, peace, and the elimination of violence against women, all of which I see being achieved in a process of building alternative eco-socialist societies right here in the midst of the ashes and the hulking shell of capitalism. So our journal CNS has this podcast series and the episodes are meant to bring authors who have published articles on timely topics in our journal into conversation about their work in order to bring these works that are published in an academic journal that many people cannot readily access to the attention of a wider audience. Another purpose is to do some translation of academic works into a plainer and popular language and discourse to make clear what author's research can mean to other scholars and other disciplines and fields and also to ordinary people in their everyday lives. So to that end, we frame the podcast's conversations around questions that aim to uncover the big question or questions that the author tries to answer. Why people outside of academia should care about those questions or their answers? What in the end did they learn in their studies? And finally, what follows? What should the rest of us learn from their work? And how can that knowledge be best used and towards what ends? So today we will listen in on a conversation between Wesley Carrasco, a second year geography PhD student at the University of Washington, whose research focuses on indigenous migrants and environmental justice. In conversation with Dr. Maria Jose Mendez, her research focuses on Central American shadow economies and women's livelihoods. In 2017, Dr. Guterres answered a call for papers for a special issue of Capitalism, Nature Socialism on the theme of ecofeminism. She contributed an article titled, The River Told Me, Rethinking Intersectionality from the Incommensurable World of Berta Caceres. It appears in the March 2018 issue of Capitalism, Nature Socialism, volume 29, issue one under the special title, Power, Peace, and Protest, Ecofeminist Vision, Action, and Alternatives, co-edited by myself, Taryn Giacomini, Anna Isla, and Teresa Turner. I will also post the um, URL to the chat uh, for this issue. Um, It's posted on the journals own institutional website that makes available preprints uh, preprint versions of most of the articles um, from the issue free of charge unlike the um, publishers final proof version which uh, comes at a cost so um, the article the river told me will be available um, um, through a, a free of charge free access through a, a URL in the chat so our agenda for today is already underway. Now that I have briefly introduced today's episode, we'll give about 45 or 50 minutes until around, um, um, well, 1 p.m. here in Eastern time, but we're 50 minutes, wherever you are in the world, for the conversation between Wesley and Dr. Maria. And that will leave us time at the end for a Q&A period with you, our esteemed audience. And so feel free to use the chat function for uh, sharing your comments and questions, or if you're comfortable at the end and prefer to raise your hand and be on screen, you can turn on your camera and microphone at that time to ask a question. So with no further ado, I will hand it over to Wesley and Maria for what promises to be a stimulating discussion. And again, I will chime in at the end to field the audience questions that may come up. Um, And we ask that until that time, you please leave your microphone's muted. So I'll turn it over to Wesley, if you can take it away.
1: Thank you, Lee, that's uh, such a great introduction. Uh, I just wanna start by thanking everyone for being here uh, for the invite and Maria for uh, being part of this uh, conversation with me. Um, Specifically, because we're talking about uh, really important issues, right? We're talking about intersectionality, feminism, and rethinking Indigenous worlds and futurities uh, through our human and non-human relationships. And so, you know, uh, most specifically in thinking also through uh, the lens of Indigenous peoples, the Lank of people, uh, which, you know, at this point in time, you know, are on an ongoing struggle to have their uh, autonomy and rights acknowledged, and so uh, I appreciate Maria's uh, uh, paper a lot because it really brings into uh, uh, into light not only the struggle of the Lenca, but also specifically the words of Berta Cáceres, and who we continue to be inspired by, who we continue to learn from, um, even to this day, and so you know, uh, thank you again for the opportunity to have this discussion. Um, I want to kind of begin by giving, uh, Dr. Maria the floor, uh, to have the opportunity to kind of give us a brief, um, overview of this article and maybe hit on a few key points or main questions that, um, uh, you were trying to kind of challenge us to rethink um, uh, through this article.
2: Thank you, Wesley, for that question. Also for for your introduction, Lee, thank you for that introduction and also for organizing with Teresa and others, that special issue to which I responded. I must say that in many ways, that special issue got me writing. I wasn't thinking of this article before I got this special issue. And also, um, you know, this this article in some ways, before even introducing the questions that I'm posting and that I'm trying to answer in it, perhaps it's uh, important to say that I wrote it as a a eulogy, um, as a eulogy to Berta Cáceres. Berta Cáceres had just died, um, actually, when the special call, happened and in some ways in you know, for me the the call really was it was a call um in it you know to write to to think about um this uh, this recent this recent happening um that was you know just effectively was uh, was very moving uh, was very very enraging as well um and so that article is a response to that it's an it's a eulogy to where caceres and more broadly, the question that I seek to answer in that article is How do we repoliticize? How do we rethink this frame of intersectionality that has become so central to feminist organizing, to feminist theory? And I pose that question because I find that this frame of intersectionality in Recent years, you know, if not in the in the last decade, has been heavily depoliticized. Um, has been, I think, wrenched away from some of the initial political impetus behind it. And so the article is wrestling with this question of how do we how do we rethink this frame? You know, how do we reinvigorate it? Um, how do we decolonize it? And and so the article is a response to to some of these questions. I uh, perhaps it's important to to um, try to remember what this concept of inter- intersectionality is. Um, and Wesley, I don't know if <laughs> if this is something that I, I you would like me to do right now. Um, I know that we you know wanted to also break down these concepts so that they're not. Uh, unfamiliar to the audience, although I, I do know that because intersectionality has become very much part of the mainstream, um, that people have all kinds of understandings about it. Um, and, you know, the, the way that I'm thinking about it has a genealogy. It is very much rooted in women of color feminisms and transnational feminisms and the way that this this concept arose out of those histories that these um these women of color feminisms are deeply rooted in
1: um... Yes, and uh, and perhaps we can begin with kind of making a connection through this uh, kind of genealogy to the connection you make about liberalism and the and the way that you make a comparison between the um, uh, the different ways that Berta Cáceres saw intersectionality compared to the way it was being used um, during uh, Hillary Clinton's campaign, right? And so maybe you can speak a little bit about uh, the differences through, through that framework.
2: Excellent. Yes, so the article is also a response, I think, to, to the Women's March, right? The Women's March in 2017, uh, the Women's March on Washington, it was replicated across the United States. And uh, it's important also to know that many women's marches were happening across the globe, right? I mean, very much structured around different concerns, um, but there was sort of this unifying theme, right? That, women were marching on the streets um, for different, for different purposes. And what happened was that, you know, when I went to this march, I noticed, and this was present mostly in many of the banners that people were carrying around, but this notion that the intersectionality was about inclusion, about some kind of inclusionary feminism. And uh, for instance, there was this banner that said, intersectionality is, is not divisive feminism. And the implication was that, you know, intersectionality was just about, was naming this space where women uh, were peacefully converging from, you know, all all kinds of trajectories. They were coming together um, and they were opposing patriarchy. Right. Um, of course, you know this. This. Uh, this is what I think is a depoliticized version of intersectionality because it thinks about the intersection as the, just this peaceful convergence of women, where power differentials between them are left intact. So we're just thinking really about a horizontal space, right, where women are coming together and they're coming together to oppose something like patriarchy, right? Um, And I found that, you know, this concept was just extremely was so distinct from the way that either was initially coined by Kimberly Crenshaw in her article mapping uh, the margins, the way in which uh, many other feminists of, of color were thinking about intersectionality and the way that they were thinking about it, let's say in the case of Crenshaw, right, it was thinking about how different systems of oppression overlap to create distinct experiences for people with multiple identity categories. And so intersectionality was not really about inclusion, right? it was not really this space where women were just converging peacefully and resisting patriarchy. It was actually, it was about the space of exclusion. It was about the space, um, you know, where where power differentials are extremely, are, are palpable between women. Um, you know, bell hooks tells us right that that, for instance, like a strong sisterhood can only be forged if women acknowledge the ways in which you know they have ex- exploited, they have oppressed other women, right? So it was a very different, very different sense of intersectionality um, that that you know you see being theorized by women of color feminisms, and so just this stark contrast, right, between the kind of intersectionality mobilized in the women's marches versus the, the one that in some ways also inspired the women's march, uh, right? Because it was in, in some ways uh, self-defined as an, as an intersectional march. Um, I, I found this contrast to be um, quite telling in terms of just where the concept of intersectionality has been, has been going and uh, moving towards. And so, you know, in many ways, then my, my critique is is that what we need to repoliticize it. We need to in some ways go back to that initial formulation, but also we do need to move beyond that. And so, you know, let's say half of the article is thinking about this beyond question, right? So once we have politicized intersectionality, once we we have recommitted intersectionality to this to this framework that acknowledges the the geographies, the histories of racism, capitalism, of patriarchy, and how these different relations of domination intersect to shape the realities of, I mean, women and peoples across the world, then, you know, where do we go next, <laughs> right? So once we, we have, we, we think about intersectionality in relationship to structures of power and power differentials, um, you know, we can't stay there. <laughs> because if we stay there, then, you know, we're really neglecting, ignoring how, um, how the people who are at the receiving end of all of these structures are resisting, are enduring, are surviving. Um, and so my shift or, or what I'm trying to in some ways also advocate for right, is, is thinking about those spaces of value, those different cosmovisions, alternatives that are emanating from these spaces of marginality. Um, so that we need to both think about power and power differentials, but also think about how is it that people are resisting these structures of domination? And so um, that's a little bit, you know, if you wish, then my 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 way of repoliticizing intersectionality is that we also need to decolonize some of it, some of the assumptions that it rests upon.
1: That is such a, an excellent breakdown. And I think, you know, you really talk about this sort of, uh, now, where do how do we move beyond that, right? And you have a chapter in your article called um, Incommeasurable Worlds, right? In which you really hearken and challenge us to think about uh, futures outside of just the violence or understanding Indigenous peoples outside of the violence that they experience, right? Um, in order to recognize that, you know, their existence, right? It's very much a political action, right? The fact that the link of people exist today, you know, is already a political action in itself. It shows the power of the people. It shows the resistance, the ongoing resistance of them. And so um, I kind of want to, uh, before we get into per- perhaps uh, defining incommensurable worlds, um, I'd like to kind of preface that with the chapter uh, that you kind of make this very much difference, right, between um, intersectionality uh, or perhaps uh, the way that, that you highlighted in the article of your experience um, during the march to the Lenka of wave feminism, right? And so can you talk a little bit about uh, imagining uh, the metaphysicality as not just this other um, you know untangible uh, way of being or thought, but a reality to uh, to indigenous understandings.
2: Um, I'm thinking about how the the woman's March also highlighted this this stark contrast between two figures, right? And so, and just maybe before I get to your question, I think that this might be useful for understanding what is this incommensurability about that I'm talking. So when I went to the Women's March, it was very clear to me (laughs) that even though Berta Caceres, so when the Women's March was was, uh, called forth, Then there was a guiding vision of principles and that was put forth by the national committee. And it was a very intersectional definition of principles and some figures such as Berta Cáceres were invoked as inspirational figures for the march, along with many other feminists from the global south and feminists of color. And what was striking to me was that at the march in some real material ways, the figure of Berta Cáceres was nowhere to be found. There was no banner with, uh, with a message from Berta Cáceres, there was you know, nothing. Um, and it almost seemed as if you know, no one also knew who Berta Cáceres was, even though the Women's March was supposed to be invoking that figure. And yet, someone like Hillary Clinton, who was not invoked as one of the figures inspiring the march, was everywhere, right? So it, she was everywhere in the banners, um, you know not not explicitly sometimes but it was clear that for many many of the women who were participating in these marches their feminism had come from someone like clinton right it was it was a feminism that was very much aligned with uh with uh, with clinton's politics and and that's you know and, and that to me was was the kind of inclusionary feminism um sort of depoliticized version of intersectionality that 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 i I found present at this March. And Hillary Clinton in in uh, in Honduras, right? This in 2009, when there was a coup against the Honduran government uh, against uh, democratically elected Manuel Zelaya, Hillary Clinton was secretary of state during that time. And, you know, just to give you a sense, because I feel like a, a lot of the the political realities of Honduras and what was happening at the time, I think they really bring to, to the fourth, all of the contradictions and tensions um, that that uh, you know that one could, for instance, you know, attribute to this kind of mainstream feminism, and so when Hillary Clinton um, legitimizes the coup, right? Everyone else across the world was asking for the reinstatement of Manuel Zelaya. Um, Hillary Clinton wasn't, and Manuel Zelaya, even though you know, he was a wealthy rural patriarch that somehow had gone left. Um, His government had been extremely progressive in terms of, for instance, raising the minimum wage, calling for a different, for a referendum uh, to revamp the constitution that had been, you know, pretty much designed during the military dictatorship or was sort of a product of the military dictatorship Um, and and many other progressive measures, right? For instance, the the, uh, accepting the contraception pill, Overnight, when Manuel Celaya was overthrown, all of these progressive measures, especially also that were uh, allowing indigenous peoples and Afro-descendant peoples um, from, you know, from across, Hondura, from across Honduras to be able to, you know, hold on to their lands and to their territories. Um, so all of these measures that were protecting indigenous and, and, and Afro-descendant lands were, you know, all of these measures were just Disappeared overnight, right? Um, with with uh, Hillary Clinton's um, legitim legitimizing of this coup and of the government, and so that's the kind of feminism, right? That in some ways, you know, is very much aligned with um, with imperialism, right? It's an imperialist feminism, if you wish. Um, and how is it possible then, if just bringing it back to the Women's March, that then you had right people um, who were promoting this feminism right that is imperialism imperialist and we're seeing that play out for instance right now in terms of in relationship to afghanistan um, and so the the kind of berta caceres heavily denounced hillary clinton so this is where we really see these contradictions and these frictions between feminisms um just you know come to the surface right berta caceres singled out hillary clinton as someone who legitimized a government that was destroying all of the, the rights that had been achieved you know, during Celaya's government, um, all the rights that were achieved for the protection of women, for the protection of LGBTQ communities, of indigenous peoples. And so we see this contrast right between these feminisms. And so Berta Cáceres, this has a lot to teach um, in terms of just you know, how we think about um, feminism and feminist solidarity from this place that acknowledges all of these structures of domination uh, but also that very much foregrounds the, the cosmovisions of indigenous people. So what does it, think to, what does it mean to think about feminism uh, from this perspective where humans and non-humans are not you know, just separate entities, but actually have you know, these beautiful nurturing relationships with each other? Like, what does it mean to think about feminism from that space, from a space that really challenges colonial modernity? That challenges all of these dichotomies that we have inherited from both, you know, liberal uh, political ideologies, and also from, um, I mean, even from 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 feminism. Um, so I think that's kind of, you know, where this different space of value emerges for me, at least.
1: Yeah, and and thinking about like the political landscape of of Honduras, right? I was I was out there at. The tail end of 2019, and during that time, uh, Juan Orlando Hernandez, the president, uh, the current president of Honduras, um, was being investigating for uh, 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 which narco trafficking, money laundering, and during that time, um, you saw this large uh, gathering and. and mobility of not just the indigenous peoples of Honduras but of the student population uh, in mass protests in Tegucigalpa, which is the capital uh, of the capital city of, of Honduras. And, and so to really understand, right? And then I think one of the things you, you talk about, right? Is, it's understanding that, um, that there's, there's power still even uh, uh, within those that um, are, you know, purely ongoing or experiencing these intersectional forms of oppression. And, um, you know, and so, you know, I want to ask you, right, uh, you have a, a, a portion uh, in your paper that you really talk about, rivers and understanding and learning from rivers and uh, the, the power of listening uh, to the river. Um, you know, can you talk a little bit about um, sort of you know, your experience or uh, you know, your understanding um, of the river and how you interact with it?
2: That's a wonderful question, Wesley. Because it's really at the at the core, and it's perhaps the most difficult aspect to to think about. Um, and it's how how do we how do we find stories that resonate? How do we find personal stories that resonate with indigenous cosmovisions that might not be cosmovisions that that shaped us, that we were raised in. So, for instance, I give the example of how, right, the Lenca peoples in Honduras have all kinds of spiritual beliefs, have all kinds of, you know, rituals around the relationship with the land, with the rivers, and in many ways, these 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 relationships are are rooted in in, in the Lenka culture, right, in in Lenka history. And in that way, they're they're incommensurable, right? They they are different, Um, they're unique, right? They're not necessarily, if you wish, like reproducible, um, as, you know, if we're thinking just about the different ways in which indigenous communities relate to rivers, relate to land, um, we might want to say, well, you know, and, and we often generalize, right? And we say that um, that indigenous communities have a different relationship to the land. Um, for instance, that they do not see the land only as this exploitable resource, but that the land is actually an agent. It's it it has life. It's it's it has agency in some ways, right? Um, but it's also important, I think, to say and to affirm that that indigenous peoples, like that they have a different relationship to that land. Like e- e- even though the land might, might not be seen as exploitable, right, the names, the meanings that they attach to it, they vary, they're very different. Um, and in, some, in, in, in many ways, my personal exercise was to, to try to find, in, you know, in my upbringing, right, in my, in my own uh, life, uh, what were those moments where I could find a resonance with those beliefs? Right, and resonance is is different from you know saying that um, that I have the same beliefs, right? Um, it's really trying to understand, it's doing the homework of trying to understand how Indigenous peoples relate to the land and finding stories that resonate with that. So, in my experience, for instance, and I talk about this um, at length in in the article, is that. Um, I, I grew up in Honduras and uh, my family, at least my dad's family is from the countryside. So from Olancho, that's in Northern Honduras. And it's a beautiful valley, um, you know, that unfortunately has been subject to a lot of deforestation, uh, but growing up, um, you know, we would we would spend our summers, our vacations here with my grandparents and we would be constantly going to the river, right? I mean, we, we loved being in the river. That's, we wanted to be there the whole day, just, in the river, um, and so for me, the the river, you know, beyond just uh, this uh, body of water that you know provides for needs, um, you know, that allows you to irrigate the land, for instance, right? It's like beyond all of these immediate needs that it fulfills, um, it 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 was it was a nurturing space. Right. And of course, it's, it's difficult to describe that, but, um, but I learned so much, right? I learned so much from being in that river. I learned colors. I learned, I, I learned that the flow, right, of, of, of the river uh, was, was related to how the river shaped the earth. I, I learned so many things just being in that space. Um, and, you know, this, in spite right, of, you know, perhaps like a Christian upbringing, um, you know, that wouldn't necessarily, you know, see life in the rivers. Um, or life in nature Um, and so my homework really I think for you know for this article but also just in in general is to then find these stories that resonate right so so think about how Berta would go into the river she would sit and she said you know I I just in her moments of weakness (laughs) in her moments of fear that she would go to the river would just sit and would listen to it right would talk to the river and so what does it mean to think about that, not as metaphorical, but as, uh, but as real, right, as truth. And it's very difficult to do that because, because we usually think of that just as metaphorical, like, oh, that's very nice. That sounds poetic, um, excellent, <laughs> you know, next. Um, and so it's a challenge. Like, what does it mean to try to inhabit that as a truth? And so for me, that meant finding stories in my own upbringing, in my own relationship to the river, to the land, um, that resonated with that. They're not the same. So that's why incommensurability is that ethic of incommensurability is very important because it allows us to acknowledge that you know, our understandings, right, our relationships to the land, you know, are not are not exactly the same as those that, for instance, the Lenka might have. Um, in spite of that, though, like in spite of that incommensurability, because we are coming right from from in some ways, like from different upbringings, from different worlds. Um, in spite of that, what does it mean to find to find to find some kind of commonality, some kind also of resonance, right, that does not just colonize that belief that does not just, you know, immediately try to translate it into, you know, something that is, for instance, um, in, let's say um, eh, the digestible for academia, right? What does it mean to just deal with that difference, to acknowledge that difference without trying to consume it right away? Um, and I think that's the challenge, right? Of how do, we, how do we think about beyond this dichotomy between the human and the non-human in ways that also uh, that, um, that don't try to immediately uh, just colonize those, those understandings. Um, that it finds rhythms, like finds familiar rhythms, find resonances.
1: Exactly. And I think um, with my own work, and when as as I'm thinking about you know um, the realities for uh, indigenous peoples who are now, you know being uh, subjected to uh, illegalities, um, Violence, uh, criminalization at borders, and I'm thinking about the indigenous immigrant. Um, I, I I think a lot about that metaphysicality, right? Trying to understand that uh, indigenous people's relationships to and their understanding of the of the world around them isn't always something that can be um aligned with our western uh with western thought right with this ideas because sometimes we get we, we fall into these traps of trying to make things fit right trying to trying to make a square peg fit into a circle um, and i think that's sometimes where we do uh, a lot of uh, we perpetuate a lot of this violence that has historically happened or has been, uh, indigenous peoples have been subjected to. And I'm thinking about, uh, you know, the fact that um, indigenous peoples um, in the, you know, southwest border are being mislabeled as, you know, uh, uh, with Latinidad, been given uh, new nationalistic identities because the the U.S. settler state wants to undermine their indigenous uh, rights as indigenous peoples, right? So um, in thinking through about sort of this, uh, through this metaphysicality, you know, I'm trying to understand and, and, and advocate that, you know, no matter whether an indigenous person is this this place, that that metaphysical relationship that they have to the place that they come from cannot be stripped by the settler state, even if they're relabeled as whatever, right? And I think your your paper really speaks to the significance of trying to understand indigenous futurities and worlds, you know, not just as these, this folklore or, you know um, these uh, metaphorical things, but this reality that is very much tangible, right? Um, and you know the way you defined um, incommensurable worlds, I think, really speaks to the challenge of that. Um, uh,
2: but yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I think you're you're right that there's there's. Um... This is not just, I think, in academia, but really the way the way that we think about political economy, about the environment, the way that we think about needs, development, just the way that we define all of these big concepts. Um, in some ways, you know, still they they rely on this, on the separation, on the separation between the human and the non-human. They, they are predicated on these, these colonial dichotomies, right? Because it is a colonial dichotomy or you know, someone like Maria Lugones will tell us that, you know, coloniality is, is by definition um, the denial of existence of worlds that have different ontological presuppositions. So the denial of worlds where perhaps, um, you know, humans and non-humans are not in this dichotomous relationship, but in, are in, in a very different one. Right. And so what does it mean to what does it mean to decolonize that and to to decolonize that? It means that we need to to listen, not only to, I think, indigenous peoples and what they might have to say right about about that relationship between between humans and nature. um, But also that we take those that we take those claims seriously, that we don't think of it just as folklore, just as metaphorical. Right. And because that will fundamentally shape um, our understandings of political economy, our understandings of what constitutes agency. And so I I, I, in the in the article, I really focus on this question of agency and how liberalism has reduced agency to um, to the acts of, of an intentional subject. Right. Like to the acts of sort of of an individual. So we think about agency mostly in relationship to I mean to humans. Right. To, to individuals, um, and that that agency or that intentionality is denied to some. So it's denied to it's denied to to nature. It's denied animals. Right. That in some ways is what differentiates us from from the non human. And I think. I mean, without generalizing too, but that indigenous knowledges and cosmovisions really challenge um, this this understanding, right? Where agency is not just, not only resides in the realm of human, it resides elsewhere. And so when we start thinking of all of these, I mean, all of these um, animals, the thinking of nature, right? As having some sort of intentionality and and agency, uh, then we're really looking at the world differently. You know it's, it's something different so just to give you an example for instance when we are assessing development projects so oftentimes you know development projects will be justified under this idea that they will be meeting you know basic human needs right so they'll be if you build a dam for instance the idea is that you will be providing peoples with water that you will also be providing other others with uh, irrigation um, and that it will be, you know, in some ways fulfilling all of these human needs. So that becomes your like mode of assessment, right? Is really how can you power these re- rivers so that they can serve humans? And when you think about the opposition that, so indigenous opposition to dam construction, in the case of Honduras, Lenka opposition, for instance, to the construction of the Aguasarca Dam, um, uh, which led to the killing of Berta Cáceres, that opposition was not just about, um, you know, you will contaminate the rivers, you will displace us, um, you know, we will no, no longer be able to, for instance, you know, meet our basic needs because you're, if you're displaced, right, by these development projects, you have no access to water, um, right? Your, your, your lands are also, t- are, are flooded. Um, so you're kicked out of those spaces. So that opposition, of course, it has to do with all of that. But it also had to do with this relationship to the river. Of thinking about the river as a sentient being, that actually what is at stake is not just a question of human needs, that what's at stake is also how you relate to that river. The river is not just a resource right, to be exploited. If the river is a source of your well being, that you define yourself in relationship to that river, that it's at the core of your existence then it's not just about these basic human needs but you know but that opposition already contains I think this different understanding of what the rivers are which is that rivers are sentient beings right so it leads to a whole new assessment of um, of uh, of development projects of political economy it leads to a whole new assessment of what are the threats what are the risks of these projects right it's no longer just about immediate displacement of humans um, it's really about cutting the lifeblood, like you know, that connects people to these these ecosystems, to the to to these surroundings. Um, so I think that I mean that's that's what what's at stake in these indigenous struggles for me, and that's why you know Berta Cáceres and her struggle is so inspiring, uh, because it really foregrounds that, um, and I think it foregrounds that that not only for indigenous peoples, it foregrounds that for all of us, right? I mean, for the planet, for the for the for the survival of the planet. I think that's what was at stake for Berta Cáceres in, in, uh, in uh, you know, her, her call for us to wake up, right? She says, wake up humankind, you know, let us let us free our consciousness from the rapacious capitalism, patriarchy um, and, and racism that you know, we'll only assure our own self-destruction. That's what she says. But then right after she says that, she says, we need to listen to the rivers right? So I think that that really, I think, sums up what is at stake in thinking about intersectionality beyond just the site of oppression. Um, What does it mean to think about it from the space of different values, from the space where you are listening to rivers, where you're talking to rivers, not in a metaphorical sense, and, you know, in in a true sense. Um, It's a very different kind of feminism that emerges out of that. And I think that it, you know, it's a lighthouse. It's, it's it's a very, it's it promises a very different future, right? All these futurities, I think that Wesley, you were invoking um, these indigenous futurities are are futurities for the rest of us too, um, who might not define in ourselves as indigenous.
1: Yeah, that that makes me think about, um, there's a point in your article that you talk about swimming as a political action, right? And trying to understand your, how, you, how you first um, felt and responded when you first heard that, right? Um, I think you, you, you add this very like uh, interesting anecdote that you were shocked in a way, right? Um, and so can, can you take us back to that moment of, of um, when you comprehended or at, or at least understood um, what they made by swimming in El, el Hualcarque uh, and the Rio Blanco was a political action in itself.
2: Yes, so swimming as a political action, so maybe just to provide a little bit of context to the audience, because they um, you know, probably will not know where, where this is coming from, but I, I went on a witness for peace delegation. This was to Honduras. So we visited COPIN. This is the organization that Berta Cáceres co-founded. and. And we, it was a group mostly of uh, US academics and activists. And so one of the Minneapolis-based activists asked, you know, what are some of the political actions or the strategies that you employ to oppose DESA, which was the company that was constructing the Awasarca Dam. And and one of them said, you know, swimming, <laughs> right? And to me, and, and that I think just baffled me because of course what I expected was uh, for, for The the copines or the members of Copin to say something like um, roadblocks, right, or international um, international activism, right, to 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 get banks not to fund these dams. But I expect that sort of the political strategies that we usually think about uh, when we're in you know just um, trying to understand struggles. Um, So swimming just threw me off. Um, And I think it threw me off precisely because I was holding on to this understanding that, you know, their relationship to the river was, if you wish, like a more material one, right? Because if your relationship to the river is, let's say, a more material one, then you're really, you know, you're trying to do everything so that You know, this this dam doesn't get constructed and what's at stake for you is because, well, you know, they're gonna contaminate the water and I'm gonna drink that water, right? So let's say that's the the kind of uh, vision or understanding that I was trying to highlight before. Um, And I think that doesn't allow you to understand how swimming can be a political action. Swimming can only be read as a political action if you're thinking about how the Lenka people relate to the river as a sentient being. So that swimming, (laughs) Right, that swimming is not about roadblocking. It's not really a strategy that, if you wish, is, uh, is formulated in relationship to the oppressor. Um, it's not a direct response to the oppressor uh, in the ways that roadblocks is, right? Because roadblock you're literally trying to stop. I mean, we're seeing it with pipelines, right? You know, you're trying to stop trucks from coming in and building those dams or building those pipelines. Um, but swimming is not, you know, I mean, quite doing it at least in that very straightforward way. So, so swimming is a is a, as I understood it, right? Um, and I mean, learning from from really from the Copinas was that swimming was this. I mean, was a, about an ethical relationship to that river. Was almost, you know, was being in that relationship with the river, and that that is resistance, and that's resistance be, not not because it's resisting the the powerful in terms of its material intervention, but it's resisting, it's resisting this idea or it's resisting this, this ontology, right, where you could not be in relationship with a river uh, beyond the ways in which it provides you with material needs. So I think swimming just it's a beautiful, um, you know, it's a a beautiful way of thinking about it as you know, your swimming is about re- relating. It's, you know, the, the river is your relative. Um, and it's it's a relationship that is not just determined by the powerful. So I think that's what's very unique about thinking of, you know, that as a form of resistance, because it's not straightforward. Um, and it's challenging precisely because it treasures or in some ways it captures this uh, Very unique and incommensurable relationship that the Lenca peoples have with their rivers.
1: That is so well put. Thank you so much, Maria. Um, I think we are um, around our 15 minute mark, Um, but I wanted to give you the opportunity to just kind of uh, um, finish us off uh, today's discussion with. you know, what follows, where do we go from here? Um, you really challenge us to think about um, not only our positionality, not only um, our through our intersectionality, but challenge us to understand different worlds. And so uh, the floor is yours. And um, after that, we'll uh, transition to, to leave for a Q&A.
2: Thank you, Wesley. Let me perhaps conclude by by saying that, mm, that not only we need to rethink um, how we we stand in solidarity with uh, with others. I mean, in in this case, right, at least the article is really much about feminist solidarity, like rethinking feminist solidarity from from that space, um, from that decolonial space of of values and of relationships with with sentient beings, um, I think I would, you know, perhaps uh, just close by saying that um, one of the one of the directions that I'm that I'm trying to follow after after writing this piece is uh, is is really asking the question of, um, you know, how do we how do we in, in, in Latin America right now, there's a term used and it's called acuerpar, which means to, the translation is, my translation is a little bit literal, but it's about, you know, putting your body in the line, like standing side by side. Um, and it's usually invoked when, for instance, there's feminist encampments and they're inviting others to come and join, right? So what does it mean to, to not, to stand side by side, um, to learn, um, and and uh, and and really to be open to deconstructing our own beliefs, our own presuppositions, it means being very humble. Um, so I think that where I, you know, where I end and where I'm trying to take uh, these ideas is to really try to envision or or find vocabularies, right, that allow us to challenge ourselves to be humble, to listen, to in some ways challenge our, our Western disbelief uh, and be you know, and be open um, to to finding stories within our own lives um, that resonate, right, with uh, many of the stories that we hear on the ground without, you know, without trying to put ourselves in other people's shoes, uh, which I think is this empathetic uh, identification that is being very much promoted right now. Um, in terms of just you know trying to identify with other people's sufferings is usually the way that we're thinking about solidarity. Um, so this you know this empathy—it's clear in the case of Afghanistan, for instance. Um, I mean, just think about one of the congresswomen in like the early two thousands. like was wearing a burqa, went to the congress, right, um, and that was her way of empathizing with the plight of Afghan women. Right, that's a very colonial kind of solidarity and empathy. And so I think um, that we need to be thinking about uh, resonance, like standing side by side, not standing in other people's shoes, uh, but learning, doing the homework to really investigate and research um, from others, right? Instead of just identifying with with their suffering in this very colonial way. Um, So I think that's where the the article tries to push the conversation, right? Just towards imagining um, different kinds of solidarities.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much for all these words of wisdom and experiences that have raised so many questions and critiques in my own mind. Um, Before I address any of my own questions, I'd like to open up the floor to any of the audience members. I do see um, there is one question in the chat. Um, by Taryn Giacomini. Um, I will just read out what she says here. I love this idea of resonances in the context of community building and solidarity in social movements. I am a community organizer and I work with farmers, peasants, and indigenous people. There is so much more we need to, uh, that we can do to listen to each other and bring together different worldviews. Do you want to comment on this idea of resonance in relation to solidarity? How can we act in more relational ways and resist both as a way to defeat capital, patriarchy, racism, and to be more human in the web of life? She also asks, do you have a book? She can't wait to read it.
2: Thanks for that question Taryn, and I don't have a book yet but <laughs> but hopefully hopefully we'll we'll write one that is uh, also inspired by some of Wesley's questions and and just uh, this invitation to to think about the the project and and, and solidarity um, in relationship to 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 both uh I mean, I think specifically in my case, uh, Indigenous people struggles um, for the defense of land. Um, so, to your question, I think I think this question of solidarity and of, of finding resonances is uh, is a very specific one. I would I would refrain from from giving recommendations on you know how how solidarity has to be forged or has to be done on the ground because I think. It's a very situated it's a very situated um, um, struggle um, and, and that's why even this concept right of situated solidarity um, it's a kind of it's a kind of solidarity that is that is forged in a specific place right so it has to have into account the power asymmetry shaping that place. Um, it has to have into account you know the specific ways in which people also have student solidarity with each other throughout. Throughout history, um, so I would I would be maybe a little cautious in terms of just thinking, you know, how how one would how one would um, construct or how what one would um, build the solidarity um, in just in general, right? Um, but I think that you know something important and and that I'm thinking about um, specifically in in relation to your question on this um, the, about this idea of, of resonance is that. Resonance means that, to me, that that you really have to listen, that you have to be open to challenging your own presuppositions, and I think we often don't find this um, in struggles. And I, you know, I I won't I won't name them, right? Um, but of course, I've I've participated in in circles um, where social activists, you know, feminists movements. Um, don't listen. Right. Um, everyone comes to those spaces sometimes with their, you know, with their full-fledged understanding of what needs of, of what's at stake, of what needs to be um, struggled against. And of course, that's important, right? I mean, there has to be some, some rallying points. There has to be some sense that you're in, in a common struggle against, you know, whether that is a development project or against dam building in Honduras, for instance. Uh, but I think that, you know there's sometimes um, i i I've encountered little humility I think on the part of i'll give you an example for instance um, in uh, you know in Honduras there's especially so worker based struggles or also um, just broader social movements connected for instance to to um, to labor unions um, are very very cynical for instance about the spiritual connections that certain indigenous groups and for instance the Lenka peoples have to the land have to rivers Um, you know they they don't necessarily relate to that Um, they think that it's perhaps a distraction right almost like a cultural distraction from what's really at stake which might be really you know the material the material Uh, dynamics, right, of society. And so almost that these Lenka beliefs are, are just an aside or distraction um, from what's really at stake, right? So you see these tensions between movements. And I would say that that's a moment where there's no resonance, right? There's no openness, there's no humility, there's no, no, no attempt to try to understand, right, why that is important, you know, what we might learn from that. And so I think that, you know, if, if anything, I would advocate, like if I wouldn't advocate for just how solidarity has to be has to be forged because I think that's very specific and situated. But I would really advocate just for that openness, like for that openness to be, to learn. You know, and this is not really my term. This is this is Spivak, but saying that we need to learn learn to learn from below. Like, how do we learn to learn from below? Um, you know, and that means being extremely humble. Um, that means listening um, and 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 being open to challenging our presuppositions and I think that that's not an that's not a comfortable position to be in you know we often want to defend um our our fully fledged positions Um, especially I think in academia right you have to appear extremely confident like you have everything under control Um, and and so I think just having this you know this this openness leads to resonance you know suddenly we're like oh wait a second you know, I mean, at least in, you know, in my case, it led to that resonance. It led to that moment where it's like, well, you know, this, you know, there might be something in my world that resonates with this, with this relationship to the river. You know, there might be something there. It might not be the same, uh, but, but uh, doing that introspection, that is not just self-absorbed, but doing that introspection that allows you to, to really then change the way you're thinking about struggles, the way you're interpreting other people's struggles, for instance, indigenous struggles, right? It allows you to understand that what's at stake is, um, um, is, is enormous. <laughs> Wonderful. I,
0: I hate to jump into a new question. I'm, you know, I'm just kind of absorbing the, that message. That's really powerful. But we do have a question. And and I have a question that's sort of related. But I want to give the floor to one of our audience members, John Valencia, who writes in the chat, "Um, I really appreciate this analysis, especially how intersectionality has been uh, co-opted by liberal politics. I have thought about uh, that a lot and how Western ways of relating are assumed as a default and often wonder about how to be inclusive of other ways of knowing. I am curious if you can speak more of how we can learn and uplift indigenous views without colonizing them in our work.
2: That's a challenge. (laughs) That's a huge challenge. And I think especially for those of us who are in academia, there's there's a huge problem. And the huge problem is that because the academic world, right, me capitalizes on knowledge, because the academic world is constantly trying to discover sort of new areas of inquiry, right? Knowledges that have not been explored. Um, it's really a machine of capture, um, if, if you wish, right? And, I mean, a capitalist machine of capture in that way, right? So that suddenly, I mean, and and we will we see this in in academia. I think not just in North America, um, but also this way in which, knowledges like indigenous knowledges, um, become gain a certain kind of currency, right? They gain a certain kind of currency, and if you wish, they get colonized. Um, they become part of this almost multicultural world where you know now we pay attention to indigenous knowledge you know now we also um you know it becomes sort of because the academic world is so much shaped by this diversity logic by this inclusionary logic um but it's an inclusionary logic that, that captures right that doesn't actually allow knowledges to those knowledges that it's in some ways welcoming to really challenge its structure um and i think that's a that's a more difficult question it's like you know I think the the more difficult question is not how do we include. Like you know, people are including them, right? I mean, there's there's even spaces that are being created. Postdocs, you know, just read job ads, right? Where where the university is seeking for is seeking people who are who are um, familiar with those vernaculars that are familiar with those knowledges and can teach it, right? So that's in some ways like the inclusionary disposition. And I think that's being done. I mean, I, I do it in my own courses, right? Like in my syllabi. So I will include, for instance, indigenous authors. Um, and, and I partake, I think, in that dynamic. Um, I don't, you know, I, I wouldn't say that we don't need to do it. I just think that we need to also acknowledge that it's a disposition um, that in some ways um, really keeps us away from this, I think this broader problem of, you know, how do we then, Allow these knowledges to restructure academia, to restructure the way we teach, the way we approach—I mean, knowledge in general. So it's a different question. Like I would say that you know universities right now are inclusionary, or, or, or in some ways—I mean, of course, like, to a certain extent. I don't want to also, um, you know, to, to also exaggerate this claim. Uh, but they're they're on board, like with that kind of inclusionary disposition. What they're less on board with. Right? Is, this, is this this position that actually thinks about these knowledges as some sort of truth that fundamentally uproots right? Western ways of knowing? I think that's a different question. I think that's one we haven't dealt with enough, um, but uh, not one that I can answer right now, uh, of course, uh, but it's, uh, I think it's a, it's a question we need to be focusing on.
0: Um, I'm just gonna slip in a a comment of mine because what you're saying um, reminds me of, I'm doing a little bit of substitute teaching. I'm teaching someone else's course and it's a history of ecology course. And one of the things, you know, you read the ecology journals from the early 1900s, the 1905s and whatnot. And the ecologists, the European male ecologists are, you know, rooted in the Baconian scientific method, which is all about separating people from nature and probing nature to extract value. Um, Where, you know, the discussion about a body of water is whether it constitutes a singular unit or, uh, or whether it's biotic and abiotic components can be, can live independently of each other, et cetera, where um, your um, focus on your findings uh, from your article about uh, rivers being sentient beings. And, you know, as a sort of, um, uh, analogy to the whole idea of indigenous knowledge and what it can do in a, in a university setting or just in people's thinking in, in popular culture, that you know beyond you know the, the kind of linear thought that if okay, we can all agree that a body of water is a singular ecosystem. Yay, biotic and abiotic work together hoo! now we can go ahead and put a price and a cost on these ecological services. So that the the line of, you know, the, the logic of the knowledge produces actions that are commensurate. So when you start introducing the idea of a river being a sentient being, it suddenly removes the whole idea of now you can't cost and put a price on that. And it suggests a whole nother way of being that is more about recognizing our relatives in nature, and you know I think it's uh, that's one of the powers of that uh, that 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 kind of thinking. Um, you know is not allowed in you know in, in an equity diversity and decolonization project at a at a university like you say you can have a unit on indigenous knowledge but we can't allow um, rivers to be seen as sentient beings that will stop all mining activities that the university may be involved in you know so that yes. there's that that kind of clash but but for for you know radical thinkers and for the popular imagination. Um, you know, it, it, it's useful to have this way out of the cul-de-sac of capitalist thinking, which is nature is good, we should put a price on it. And um, this gives an alternative that, that leads to a much more humane um, world. And speaking of hu- humane, not only humans, but non-humans. We have a question from Marco Armario. Um, who's one of our editors at CNS? Um, he says, Thanks for this discussion. I'm interested in your discussion on human and non human relationships. In the field of environmental humanities, there is a growing discussion on this, and there is a strong post humanist turn. I often see a strong depoliticization. Humans and non humans, for instance, seem to erase the differences within humans and perhaps among non humans like his dog has quite a strong EU passport. So can you tell us something more on how to work on overcoming this humans, non-human dichotomy from an eco-socialist, eco-feminist perspective? How can we build multi-species alliances?
2: Thank you for that question. That's excellent, Marco. I think you're right on. It's in some ways, this is also, there's another challenge and it's that, in many ways, I think the the this posthumanist turn um, almost, in some in some ways, echoes right. I mean, echoes this turn to also indigenous knowledges and cosmovisions to try to rupture this dichotomy between the human and the non-human. And I and I do agree that you know, even though I'm not extremely familiar with 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 the posthumanist turn, and I'm very much coming to this question, I think from from uh, indigenous uh, cosmovisions and epistemologies, um, I think um, that it is—it is—you know—it is—it is a tricky turn because what it does sometimes is also that it dematerializes, um, as you say, sort of this these uh, these real power differentials between—I mean—between I mean, between humans, which is something that intersectionality, right, brings attention to. Um, so, in many ways, I mean, that's that's why I think that. It's about keeping both together or in in the the way that I'm thinking about um, what it means to deconstruct this human non human dichotomy is very much tied with an analysis of power, so it's not detached from it. Um, And I don't know that it circumvents the problem. uh, But it's really, you know, it's, it's the, holding on to this frame of intersectionality that makes visible how multiple structures of oppression precisely, you know, create different experiences and vulnerabilities for humans um, is, you know, is the first step. Like we need to be there, right? Like that's where we need to start in some ways, like acknowledging those power differences. These are the power differentials that indigenous leaders like Berta Cáceres and really, I mean, across the world bring attention to. So we start there, uh, but that can't be just, you know, that can, we can't stay there either. Right, because if we stay there, you know, then we're still holding on to these liberal conceptions of agency. We're still holding on to these dichotomies of colonial modernity. And so this move to deconstructing the human and non-human, it's not not, um, exclusive, you know, from from this framework of intersectionality, Um, it builds on it, you know, it's connected to it. It's like, how do we think of those two together? And I think that might be perhaps the difference between Let's say you know someone like Berta Cáceres, or even indigenous academics, right? Who are thinking about um, th- these different relations is that they're starting from a they're starting from a diagnosis of power, um, and power oftentimes in th- in its global dimensions. Um, so I think that I don't you know it's not that that's a solution. It's just that when one is deconstructing these dichotomies, you still need to have right a diagnosis of power. That's essential. Otherwise, it becomes I mean, to me, in some ways, it's it's fluff, right? Like it's it's you know, it just sounds like we're just uh, you know, it's the inclusionary disposition. It's you know, let's welcome indigenous knowledges into the academy, um, you know, let's welcome other cosmovisions, but it's still within this disposition that you know those knowledges are tamed, you know, they're deeply tamed, right? They just become part of this multicultural machine, um, and and I think it's different when you're trying to really you know. The, the the alliances right that one would create, um, you know, whether it's multi-species, like, I think the first step is just, you know, is trying to, is, is trying to take these these knowledges so seriously that it will really like would completely restructure, completely reshape how we're thinking about knowledge, how we're thinking about agency, how we're thinking about political economy. Um, I think we need to get there before even thinking about how we would be establishing those alliances. Um, I, you know, we're not there yet. Um, Where I, I think, uh, I, I mean, we as in, you know, perhaps academics like non-Indigenous, um, you know, scholars and activists. Like I wouldn't say, um, you know, of course, I think that you know, they're. Um, Ancestral and current relationships to the land. Right. I mean, that's, they don't need to learn that. Right. I mean, we, we, we don't, we, we don't know that we've, we've, um, we're just starting to learn how, you know, what that would mean. Um, And I think that that challenge, I think that that openness, um, but always with an analysis of power.
0: Wonderful, so I will ask and invite anyone else who hasn't yet spoken or even someone who has already spoken um, to ask any further questions in these last moments. If no one has a question, I'm gonna assume that everyone has is satisfied and, um, and just give my uh, warmest thanks to Wesley for um, agreeing to, on this podcast and for doing such a a marvelous job in posing questions and keeping alive a very wonderful conversation. And um, for Dr. Maria, thank you so much and um, good luck on all of your uh, new ventures at Harvard and later at Toronto and we will be watching for you and for your uh, the development of your wonderful work and for to, to read more about uh, what you're finding out there in the world. And with that, I want to thank the audience very much for attending and um, please watch uh, for the recording of this podcast. You can share it with your friends. Um, There'll be also some show notes um, that will be provided on the CNS website, along with the podcast recording, so that you can follow up on some of the references that have been made during this talk. And thank you again. Uh, Maria, do you want to have the final word? Oh, I just wanted to thank
2: you, Lee, Wesley, Maritza, for the invitation, um, and also for putting putting forth that special issue uh, of which the article was a part of i it was it was excellent thank you so much (laughs) and thanks to the public also for the questions
0: wonderful well now closes the second podcast of our series and it's been uh, wonderful one at that and we look forward to the next and we hope to see some of your faces at that time too. Keep you in the loop and invite you when that time comes. Have a wonderful rest of your day and stay safe and be well.